0: Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Again, everyone. Good to be back together again. We've seen a lot of each other lately, and not sick and tired of each other. So that's good. It is as Jen hinted and uh, talked about in his prayer. It is the end of the first week of the Feast of Weeks, so we are one week through, uh, through one week of seven and through seven of 50 day their 50-day count. I'd like to start out with a little bit of fun here. The American Film Institute, listed there, this is just working. No, it's not. There we go. American Film Institute recently listed their top 100 movie quotes of all time. See how many of you know any of these. We're not going to go through all 100. Some, some you won't want to blurt out because it's not a very good movie. So I'll reserve you the, the, uh, from having to do that. I'm the king of the world. Titanic. Let's find another one here. Carpe Diem. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. Dead poet Society. Just shout it out. We're okay. Tell them to go out there with all they've got and just win one for the Gipper. Anyone? Newt Rockney, All-American. Yes. How about... There's no crying in baseball. Leak of their own. Leak of their own. Houston, we have a problem. Apollo 13. My mama always said life was like a box of chocolates. You're going to need a bigger boat. Jaws. You can't handle the truth if you get mad. May the force be with you. Here's looking at you, kid. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. The Godfather. If I mention the film Cool Hand Luke, anyone know what line is in number 11 from Cool Hand Luke? Ray. What we have here is a failure to communicate from Cool Hand Luke came in at number 11. One of the most significant changes in our society in this generation seems to be our ability to communicate. You would think with all of the technology, we would be better at communicating. We are in touch with each other 24-7. We are, we are never away from any type of communication. But consider the following. Our education system has weakened considerably. Everything is focused on bell curves, protecting feelings. Nobody fails anymore. And while we are protecting feelings, we are not educating our children the way we should be, in my opinion. Many of us, many in society, spend their leisure time indoors on electronic devices on gaming systems and human interaction is limited we think we're interacting because we we're friends on facebook we even do these games that are interactive but it's from a chair in a basement with limited lighting facebook instagram and a whole host of other social media outlets that i have couldn't even begin to explain to you trick us into thinking We are a more interactive generation. I don't know how many friends I have on my Facebook account. I didn't bother to check, but I don't talk to very many of them, so I'm not sure how I could even consider them friends. Facebook considers them friends. I'm not sure I should consider them friends, since I don't speak to them very often. These things aren't bad of themselves. These things aren't a problem. But when they replace real human interaction we start to see the results. One of my favorite quotes from Albert Einstein, many, many decades ago, he said that he fears the day when technology will surpass human interaction. And what he felt the result would be is that the world will have a generation, in his words, of idiots. So he feared Technology Replacing Human Interaction. And the worst thing that has happened today, and we see it everywhere in the news, we see it in our daily lives, I see it at work, I see it everywhere, is that people are so easily offended now. Rational discussion has been replaced by shouting over one another, not listening, leading to protests, leading to the movement of the week. There's a new movement nearly every month, and ultimately, and far too often, physical violence. What about us? Can this affect God's people? Can we tap into this generation of idiots and allow technology and the societal norm to influence us? Has it affected us? We would be foolish to think that it couldn't. If it hasn't, we would be foolish to think that it couldn't. In Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. Paul warns us about letting the world change us. We've just come through the feast on the leavened bread. verse 2, Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't let the world change you. Let the Holy Spirit change you. This whole leavening and now unleavening process that we've been through with the Feast of Weeks that we're in now leading up to Feast of Pentecost, this is the time to continue the focus on transforming ourselves, allowing the Holy Spirit to make us better, to help us overcome our flaws, to help us become more like Christ, putting on his mind. We must not let ourselves become like this world, what Paul is saying here. And that includes how we communicate with each other. As I've mentioned, we're in the middle of the Feast of Weeks, We are in this period of time where we build off of the unleavening process that we've been through, as Ezra mentioned in his opening prayer, where we've flagged things where we need to be better, we need to continue to work on these things. As we work through this, what is a seven-week festival, now this Feast of Weeks that guides us towards the Feast of Pentecost. And as you know, here in our congregation, that becomes a focus over these Feast of Weeks here in the coming weeks. How we apply Christ's admonition here, and the admonitions we heard about on the first Holy Day, and that we've been studying in the weekly Bible studies on Revelation, how do we apply those here? The sermon we heard to start the the Holy Day, and, and in part the sermon yesterday, really focused on overcoming some of these issues, and understanding the congregational impact that it has and how Christ speaks to the congregations. And we here have an opportunity over the next seven weeks to continue to build upon the unleavening that we've done individually and collectively. So as we come to the end of week one here of the Feast of Weeks and then turn our focus from deleavening to keying up for Pentecost, I would like to take a look at communication, something that I have learned over the last number of weeks, months, and years. Is there a godly way to communicate? What happens when we fail to communicate properly? And is there a connection to the messages given to the seven churches? What happens when there is a failure to communicate? Let's start in Matthew 27. In fact, I don't think it's going to be i I'll, I'll, I'll go further than that this won't be a one week sermon I couldn't get it all in today so I've asked and Jan has been kind enough to step aside next week I'm going to make this a two parter. I just couldn't fit it all in with everything that I've been personally studying and and looking at over the over in regard to this this topic that has affected me that I'd like to bring to you but let's begin here in matthew twenty seven as we Connected to the Feast and Bread, the Passover, and these Feast of Weeks. In Matthew 27, verse 50, we come to Christ dying here. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We went through memorializing that a week ago. Verse 51, then Matthew here has a, an interesting thing that he includes. Then behold, the veil of the top, of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. He goes into talk here. The only, the only the, and we had a discussion here over the last number of weeks or months, I remember, about the saints who were raised from the grave. Verse 54, so when the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and these things that had happened, they greatly feared, saying, truly this was the Son of God. But what we see here, when Jesus breathed his last, is that the veil in the temple that separates the Holy of Holies from the other parts of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Paul, in Hebrews and in Ephesians, provides deep meaning behind this specific event. There's a reason why Matthew included this here. The veil that was torn in two. Immediately after Christ's death. Let's go over to Ephesians 2 and have a quick look. Ephesians 2. Paul highlights here the significance of this event. In Ephesians 2. We'll begin in verse 14 of Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, who is made both one, and has broken the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enemy, the enmity and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off to those who were near for through him we both have access by one spirit to the father so he here teaches us the spiritual lesson behind this middle wall of separation that separated the holy of holies in the temple from the rest of the the temple and here he likens what he says is because of that because He broke down that middle wall of separation. We have access to the Father. We have direct access to the Father. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. We're about to, next Wednesday, begin. We've come to the end of Revelation in our weekly studies. We're about to start the book of Hebrews now. We did... A Hebrew study here, three or four years ago, we went through the book of Hebrews. We're about to do it again on the weekly Bible study, chapters nine and ten. We won't take time here to go into extreme detail, but certainly invite everyone to join the the Bible studies or view them from the archives if you can't join live. But here Paul goes into some deeper detail here regarding this tearing of the veil, and this access to the Father. And you can read all about it in chapter 9 and chapter 10. We're just going to go over to the end of chapter 10 and pick it up there and sort of cut to the chase and see what what lessons we can see behind this. Verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, so his death allows us access into this into this holiest of holy places by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So the the tearing of his flesh representing the tearing of the veil that gives us access to the Father and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, so much the more as you see the day approaching. We're starting to see here this unity of the Father that Christ and the Father have, that they have poured out to us promotes and necessitates the assembling together of ourselves. That we are not to forsake the assembling of the body. We are to continue to have the body coming together. And we see here one of the reasons here is to continue to exhort one another, to continue to encourage each other through through means of Scripture and through means of conversation towards better behavior, towards the kingdom of God. So this tearing down of the veil allows direct access to the Father. What part does that play? What does this have anything to do with communication? Let's go back to John 17. John 17. This prayer that Christ is recorded by John from Christ to his father at the end of the agape meal, at the end of the Passover ceremony. The one that Christ, the final one that Christ kept with his disciples. And he prayed to the Father in front of all of the in front of all of his disciples. This was not a private prayer, this was a a closing prayer, so to speak, at the end of the Passover meal. In front of his apostles, soon to be pillars of the New Testament church. Jesus first one spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come glorify your son that your son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him and this is eternal life that they may know you the only true god and Jesus Christ whom you have sent eternal life this what we are here for what we are are struggling through this life for, what we come and keep the holy days and the, the Sabbath every year for, and continue to become better and overcome and repent what we need to and can always overcoming, is that we may obtain eternal life, this gift of eternal life. And here he breaks it down and defines what that is for us. It is simply knowing the Father and knowing Jesus Christ. Drop down to verse 9. I pray for them... I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Let's make this body that you, you have given me, make them one, he prays. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Coming before the Father, this oneness that Christ has, us getting to participate in this oneness that Christ has with his Father, This is a sample of the joy that Christ has. This joy that he wants to share with us. Verse 20. Let's drop down to verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, again, but also for those who will believe me through their word. Not just who he had there with him at that present time, but for everyone, us, who would believe in him and believe in the Father through their word. The word that they they have preserved on behalf of God here for us. That they may all be one. Again, his, his focus, his prayer, his final prayer was unity among the brethren. That they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them. That they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me. That, we may be made, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me and love them as you have loved me. When we experience that unity, that love in the body, the world has an example of the love that Christ and his Father share through our love for each other and the oneness that we have. Unity together with Christ and the Father made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that sacrifice that we have just come through celebrating. Given all of this, Doesn't the ability to properly communicate that Christ instantly could communicate with the Father or in front of his disciples become an important part of fostering the unity in these interconnected relationships? Communication is the basis of relationship. What happens when we don't communicate? What happens when we don't communicate? Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. What happens to people when they don't communicate? Again, this is Genesis chapter 2. There's just Adam and God at this point verse 18 verse 19 Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them and whatever Adam called each living creature that was its name so Adam gave names to all cattle to the birds of the air to every beast of the field but for Adam there was not found a helper compared to him small details but look at the intimate communication between Adam and God God brought the animals to him. He wasn't going to enforce the names. Let's let Adam name them. So he'd bring them to him. Imagine the conversation going back and forth. What should we call this? I have no idea what that communication would have been like. But there was intimate communication here between the Father, between God, and Adam. Yet, despite that intimate communication, verse 18, the Lord said it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. God, despite the intimate communication he had with man, with Adam, still considered man alone, without companionship. What better companionship could Adam have had than with the Father, with God, with Jesus Christ? Yet here, God says he was alone. Small detail, but interesting In light of this, let's go to Genesis 3. So we have smooth and intimate communication between God and Adam. He brings the animals, they have interaction. Whatever Adam thought, the animals would be named. And who knows how many there were. Verse 7 of chapter 3 Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I thought there was this beautiful intimate communication. And now through sin, through this one act, now they, they can't even face it. The one that they had beautiful intimate communication with, they now decide it's time to hide it's time to hide. Then the Lord God called Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman who, gave, who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And then we know the rest of the story where God pronounces his judgment upon the three of them. But look at how communication changed between the parties. A beautiful, intimate communication between God and Adam. Where they just were hanging out, naming the animals. And if they did that, who knows what all of the other communication they had. But it seemed to be very smooth. Very open. And then they do something wrong. Sin enters into their relationship. And we can imagine their thoughts. We've talked about Genesis 3 a lot this past year. We, oh, we did something really, really wrong. But let's stay in this together. We'll be in this together. Let's hide. We're not going to say a thing. Let's just go hide ourselves. We're in this together. Just you and me. And we'll stay in this together. And let's go hide ourselves. From the same God that they have just had this very personal relationship with. Since they were made. God asks them, what's wrong? There's nothing wrong. What are you talking about? There's nothing wrong. I was just a little bit embarrassed because I'm naked and I didn't didn't want you to see that. Really, naked was the problem. He had made them. He knew everything about them, but naked was a problem. Naked or guilty? What was the problem? It had nothing to do with being naked. It had to do with being guilty. And instantaneously, she made me do it. Let's hide together to, it was her. You gave her, ever since you made her, my life has been a problem. Can't you see? So much for let's hide together. What if, again, I like what if conversations. They're, They're moot. They're just interesting. What if they had simply said, God, we messed up. I messed up. Can we talk? What can we do about this? What can I do? I don't know what to do. Genesis chapter 4. Verse 6. We know the story. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel at this point. They brought offerings to God. One was acceptable, one was not. Cain became very angry. And it was clear on his face. Anyone who knew Cain, as few as there were, could tell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Cain and God. At this point, it was just between Cain and God, the offering. And it was simply an unacceptable offering. We have no clue how many times we've made an offering to God that has been unacceptable for whatever reason. Perhaps we haven't made things right with a brother. Perhaps we haven't given as we are able. Any of the biblical uh, suggestions, commands, uh, to what would make an offering acceptable. Only God knows what's in your heart. Only God knows whether we've given as much as we are able. Only God knows whether we have brought an offering completely free and clear of anything against a brother. Here, God was even offering a solution. He was offering a solution. Don't you know if you just do well, you'll be accepted? That's all. Let's, let's make this a learning experience. Do well, and you'll be accepted. So Cain and Abel talked. That's what it says. Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And that led to violence, and it led to murder. When we don't communicate properly... We see two stories, and there are many, many others we could have, I could have pulled out. But when, when we don't communicate properly, bad things result. Let's see what happens when we do communicate properly. Let's go to Genesis 18. Genesis 18. Let's walk through this story and see God's calmness and rational interaction with Abram, with Abraham. Verse 22, Then the men turned away from there and turned towards Sodom. Genesis 18, verse 22. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Abraham was not afraid to talk to God. He stood before the Lord. Him and God. And Abraham came near. He approached God, clearly, obviously, respectfully. We can see that as we go through this. But he wasn't afraid to talk to God. And he said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? That seems kind of bold to me, to be able to talk to God that way, question his his actions. But here he did so respectfully, not afraid, not rudely, are you also going to destroy the righteous? You're going to de- what if there's righteous people in that city? You're going to destroy them? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy it and not spare it for the 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing. That's boldness. Imagine talking to God that way. Far be it from you to destroy righteous people. He could have that honest discussion because he knew God. He wasn't being lippy. He wasn't being disrespectful. He was saying, God, I don't understand here. You're not this way. I know you as a God of righteous judgment. And I can't imagine you would destroy a city when there are righteous people in it. Help me understand. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous people within the city, then I will spare all the place place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said indeed now I am I am who but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord so again very respectful it's it's just me your creation here so I'm just dust and ashes I'm coming before my creator but I have a question suppose there were 5 less 50 I get the 50 how about four, where's your line is it 45 is it 40 Is it 35? Where where do you draw the line? You're a righteous God, and I appreciate that we connected at 50. Where's the line? And we see that. He gets them all the way down to 10. Down in verse 32. Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. What a, what a powerful interactive conversation. Respectful. He even said here at the end, don't be angry, but I, I got to ask you one more question. How about 10? God said, I wouldn't do it for 10. You're right. Watch how they end the conversation. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. That's, that's pretty cool to me. They have a conversation, and they go their ways. It was just a nice, easy conversation. What, power, what a powerful lesson in communication here. Calm, matter-of-fact, respectful, the patience that God showed Abraham. I'm not sure I would stick around for that many questions. I would probably invoke that I'm God. Little details, but it speaks here to rational communication. Let's go to John 18. We were just in John 17, talking about the end of the Passover meal. The events that Christ were, was came to Jerusalem, To fulfill, to have inflicted and fulfilled upon him, started to take place. When Jesus, in verse 1, had spoken these words, this prayer that we had just read, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him and said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. Who would be honest about that? They shocked them. They asked him again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. I am who you're looking for. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go your way that they might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having his sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. What did Christ say to Peter? Put your sword away. Stop this. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Let's go. I want to bring up one other point in this story. Matthew 26. Verse 52, Matthew's take, as we know, written many years before. We'll pick it up right where we left off. Verse 52, but Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scripture be fulfilled? That it must happen thus. And in that hour to the multitudes, have you come out against as a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and yet you do not seize me. Look at the faith that Christ had in his communication with his Father. Do you not know that I could instantly call for 12 legions of angels? That is the type of communication he had with his Father. Now, gauge that against the backdrop of John 17, where he desires us to be one, as they are one. And consider the level of trust and communication that must be present in the body for this to be so. For Christ to want to be at one, us to be at one with each other, and us to be at one with him and the Father, the way they're one, that he says to them, do you not know that I could instantly call my Father, and I know he will be there for me? I know he will do this, and he'll send 12 legions of angels and we'll finish all this off right away. All I need to do is speak the word. That's the level of communication that we have there. But Peter's answer was to silence. We're not going to talk about this. We're going to to have violence, and I'm going to cut off his ear. Christ instantly said, listen, put that away. Put that away do you not know that I could just call my father and and he would be here? Let's go to Luke 17. Many, many examples in Scripture of positive communication, what happens when we don't communicate properly. But there's an importance in getting communication right. Verse 1 of Luke 17. We heard this in the scripture reading. And it has to do with offense. Luke 17 verse 1. Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea and that he should offend one of these little ones. Part one of this, and we'll stop here for right now, Christ is saying, don't cause any offense to any of God's people. Don't cause any offense. Woe to anyone that causes any offense amongst God's people. And that word offense has to do with a trapstick or a snare, putting a stumbling block or anything in front of a brother or a sister that could cause them to trip or to become ensnared. In fact, the word is scandalon, where we get the English word scandal. But taking offense, especially when none is given, puts us on a dangerous road too, where we can give Satan access to our minds. Especially when no offense was, was meant. And if we take offense, so this this concept of of being offended, and we see it everywhere today. Everyone's offended at everything. The Bible teaches not to cause offense, but also to take offense. Where Where none is given puts us in a dangerous spot. We won't turn back there, but God to Cain said, sin lies at your door. Sin's just waiting there for you. And Cain, all he was was offended. He was offended that God didn't accept his offering. He was offended. Long before he broke the boundaries of brotherhood with his brother and committed murder, he became offended at God. He just took offense. That God, in his judgment, pronounced judgment on him, this offering's better than this one. Thank you, Abel. Cain, you could have done better. Let's do better. And here, Sin lies at the door. Sin's not in, but it's there. And Satan's just waiting to get a foot in, to get a wedge somehow through our hearts to get something in there so he can create a wedge. Matthew 13. Let's look at taking offense here a little bit. It is absolutely woe to anyone who causes offense. But here... Matthew makes a special point of pointing something out to us here. Matthew 13. Verse 54. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. Truth sometimes causes offense. Here, and we, we can go to many, many examples of Christ causing the people who did not believe in him, to become offended at his words. But here Matthew makes a special point of pointing it out, that they were offended by him. They were offended by truth. Let's go back to Matthew 24. We've looked at this before. I'd like to look at it again in terms of this. Matthew 24 and in verse 10. Let's back up to verse 4. Again, if you've been following the Revelation Bible studies, this this is all a a prelude to what Christ through John covers, beginning in Revelation 6 and the first five seals. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And will deceive many. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places, and all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many, Many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Look at the progression from offense to hatred to betrayal. Simply because sin lies at the door. Satan lies waiting for a wedge where he can just, just fit in somewhere. And get in there. And it starts with something as simple as being offended. Many will cause offense. Many will be offended. By truth. And then that offense will turn to betrayal. And then to hatred. And we know what Christ talks about hatred in Matthew 5. It is part and parcel of the sixth commandment. We must ever be ever cognizant of offense, whether we are on the giving side or on the receiving side, because of the ramifications that festering offense causes. Festering offense leads to betrayal and leads to hatred, and it allows sin and Satan to not just be at the door, but to get, get inside of us. This is why Christ provides measures we need to take in communicating with each other. Let's go to Matthew 18. Moreover, in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, You have gained your brother. We then, we've studied this, and we we see the, the protocol here, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or three agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. If anyone sins against us, or if we feel they have sinned against us, again, they may not have sinned, but there might be something within us that we feel they have sinned. Christ provides the measure in doing this, and simply let's go. Let's go get this out in the open and chat about this. this that has been a huge, one of my lifelong problems, is learning how to communicate. And through this Passover season, I have really seen the, the need for communication. And we talked about it on the on the Agape meal when we were speaking about that in our our. Uh, Interactive session. And it's not just about making the problem go away. What Christ says here is you have gained your brother. It is not about making it go away, making everything feel nice again. It is about gaining a brother because that's what this is all about. This whole deleavening and unleavening process is about gaining the body, ensuring we we maintain the body and becoming reconciled. Do whatever you do, Christ is saying here, to be reconciled. How often? This is where that immediately comes. We, we sometimes pull out these stories, and we never remember where they actually come from. Here's where this came from. Peter said to him, verse 21, how often do I need to do this? Up to seven times? Seven times. Is re- Abraham, he was allowed to barter this down to ten. Let's start at seven. Is seven reasonable? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. However long it takes to reconcile, that's what we need to do. That's what communication in the body does. Whatever it takes to reconcile, to gain a brother or a sister. Why? Because of the backdrop of Matthew 24, with the example of Cain fresh in our minds from the very beginning of our history, tells us that offense confessor." and rip the body apart, even setting against one another. And the closer and closer we get towards the return of Christ, that will become more evident. That's why our agape meal and our, our togetherness and all these fellowship meals that we have are so important, that we bring the, we continue to strengthen the body and our bonds together and our ties together. That's why the entire Holy Day season starts off with a fellowship meal and washing of feet to bind us together to bind us together, to make sure we understand the importance here. Let's go back to Luke 17, where we were. And Christ's interaction with them here on the same topic. We were just there. We read here, we initially stopped where he said, Woe to them who cause offense. Let's pick it up again at verse 3 where we left off. Because Luke captures their reaction when they began to understand the magnitude of this task. Luke 17 and verse 3, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. So this wasn't at the exact same time. It seems to be a different time that Christ was teaching them here. But the same topic here on offense. Because that, all of that prophecy comes much later in chapter 21. But here, the same concept he was preaching. and Notice the reaction. Lord, increase our faith. This is beyond me to do myself. Please increase my faith. For me to get For me to understand this, I need you to take me to another level of faith and, and understanding. Because they, they started to get the magnitude of this. And they, they, they had to continue. We know what happened at the Passover meal and the arguing between them and all that stuff. Because sin lies at the door. It always does. But the reaction here to this overwhelmingness of this task, that as, as often as it, t- as it takes reconcile, we see here, Lord, increase our faith like we heard yesterday, it depends on God. We must ask God for that faith so that we can proactively do what we need to do. What prevents proper communication between members? I have a theory. It's fear. Proper communication is prevented from fear. Let's go to Second Timothy one. Second Timothy one, verse seven. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We've read that innumerable times. can quote it backwards, forwards, in Greek. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Fear can paralyze people and can paralyze congregations. What is the antithesis of fear? The Holy Spirit. He has given us his Holy Spirit. Why? Because he gives us power, love, and a sound mind. Power, the boldness and the courage to do what must be done. To rely, to, Lord, increase our faith. Give me your Holy Spirit so that I can do what I, what I normally wouldn't want to do myself. What I can't do of and by myself of love, that self-sacrificial love that epitomizes who God and Christ is. That despite our fear, we will step out for the benefit of the body. That we will be bold and courageous to show love to the brethren, to communicate what needs to be communicated, and a sound mind. The ability to to interact rationally, not to go too far over the edge or to hide in your shell, but the courage and the love to communicate rationally with God's people. The Feast of Weeks are upon us. We have come through a rich and powerful Feast on the Loving Bread, beginning with By all accounts, a very meaningful Passover evening, followed by an equally meaningful night to be much observed. And all the work that we put in to celebrate the first day of unleavened bread, the work that we did and the spiritual enrichment that we felt. And then to come through and finish the feast yesterday. But our feast is not over. We have six more weeks of the Feast of Weeks to culminate in the Feast of Pentecost. We heard all about the Epistles of Christ. We've been studying them here. It's brought up more for us on the First Table of Eleven Bread. And the need to strengthen our congregation centers and revolves around communication. Guided by the Holy Spirit, we should never fear communicating with each other as long as we are operating out of love and with soundness of mind that self that sacrificial love that we see each other as god sees us and the soundness of mind that we can talk about anything and not be offended not take offense not cause offense sometimes it's sometimes the things we need to talk about can be tough look at christ he came to tell them and he offended everybody he, we could never accuse him of causing offense so that was all on those who took offense There's so much more that I'd like to talk about, about communication, that I couldn't fit in into one message. So I will need next week to wrap this up because there's so, so much more. What I wanted to do today is just lay the groundwork for next week to see the importance of communication and how it all ties back timely for us with the tearing of the veil that allowed interaction with God. No one before that had access to the Father we, had meet, we, had, we were mediated through the high priest. And then Christ came as our high priest to tear that veil apart and give us direct access to the Father. And the last thing he prayed about was that his body be one and have that fluidity of oneness that him and the Father have and that we should have with them and that we should have together. And the examples we have in Scripture of what happens when people don't communicate and then what happens when people do communicate and that example of Cain, where sin lies at the door, God said, "Don't you just just do right, and sin will not sin. Will, you'll overcome that sin that lies at the door." And this dealing with offense, just laying the groundwork for much more. That I'd like to finish off with what I have been studying about communication. Until then, let's continue to love each other with this sacrificial love that we learned all about. On the Passover evening. Enough to never cause offense or to take offense but to assume the best and communicate when anything needs to be communicated and clarified. Christ expects it from us. Christ expects us that we have the fluidity of communication. He should never ever be able to say about us what we have here is a failure to communicate.